My name is Wesley, for those of you who don't know me. Um, and today we will be continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, which Chris has been crushing so far. Totally crushing. And I figured it stands to reason that a really good way to begin a sermon on prayer is with prayer. So let me pray for us really quick. Heavenly Father, so thankful for this church family. Thankful for everyone who's here this morning, Father. And like Jaden prayed, God, we just ask that you would come, Holy Spirit, and touch hearts this morning that you would speak the words that need to be spoken to each person here, that you would do the thing that I can't do, that no one can do, and that's to touch hearts and to reveal your love and to reveal who you are, Father. And we just ask that we would be submitted to your holiness and your kingship and your fatherhood. We love you and we praise you this morning together. Amen. All right, so before we dive into scripture, I just want to take a moment to address an analogy that keeps popping into my head, and it's about why prayer matters. So how many of you enjoy going on day trips? Yeah, like a good day trip. So in Northeast Ohio, there's a lot of really cute little towns you can visit within an hour, hour and a half. There's always Cleveland or Pittsburgh. And so on such a trip, you're usually packing as much as you can into one day. So you're checking out new coffee shops, or you're walking through museums, you're exploring a new hiking trail. You might be feeling sort of sad for a large animal at the zoo, putting your hand on the glass of the gorilla enclosure. Uh, You know, you can choose your own adventure on a day trip, but they're fun and brief. And then there's vacations. So how many of you have a vacation spot or had one as a child that you return to over and over again? Yes. Growing up for me, it was a little island on the coast of North Carolina. There's something to be said about going to different places, but there's also something about returning to the same place over and over again. It's welcoming and it's warm and familiar to know these things that you've come to be familiar with year after year. So as a kid, I grew up familiar with the view from the Jolly Roger Pier, watching weathered fishermen reel in their catch, sometimes something really interesting, like a shark or a boot, eating the best $2 cheeseburger around at the same place where they sell the bait. Um, I learned to love the blind sea turtle named Lenny at the local sea turtle hospital, and the cat man who owned the putt-putt slash ice cream shop who was known for having conversations with his cats. And so the southernmost part of this island was really not very touristy. So there was one restaurant with the best hush puppies, extra butter around. There was one arcade that later became one bar with one bartender named Nate, who everyone seemed to know. There's one little bookshop with frozen lemonades and mochas, one rinky-dink post office, and one rinky-dink skating rink above the post office where you felt you might crash through the floor. So the nickname for this island is Mayberry by the Sea, and I've been dreaming about going there because I know this place. Some of the best memories with my family were made there, like daring my aunt to walk the length of the beach dressed as the cat in the hat, or challenging my cousin to eat canned sheep's brains. You know, normal family things. 
So you've got day trips, and then you have vacations. And there's something else. There's one other thing. And it's called coming back home. Now, of course, there are those with a less than ideal home life. But for hopefully most of us, we feel a little bit like Dorothy when she says, there's no place like home. You know, you get to that place on vacation where you're kind of feeling ready to come back home. You're ready for your own bed your own cooking stuff. Home is the place where you feed your dogs or your children or your family. You have your photos and your precious things there. And I just feel as though this morning God is inviting us into the same kind of familiarity with him. Not a fleeting day trip encounter, not even a vacation that is sure to come to an end, but home, the feeling of home. Psalm 27.4 says, The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. Note that the psalmist doesn't say, the thing that I seek most, to hang out with the Lord for an hour and then leave. No, he's after the presence of God. He's after a lifestyle. He's experienced the goodness of God And because of this, he desires to adore his God, meditate on the things of God, and actually live in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And I don't think you can really say that about someone you don't know very well, and especially someone you don't like very much. I want to live with you in your house forever is not the thing that first comes to my mind when I'm talking to the lady who trims my dog's nails. I don't want to live with her in her house ever especially not for forever. And she's a very nice lady, but I don't. And so if the essence of Psalm 27 sounds great to you, that's awesome. But if it sounds a little intimidating and like, wow, maybe he's really obsessed, I actually get that too. Um, Actually, in total transparency, when I was a first, a new committed follower of Jesus, I used to be someone sort of at the back of the worship gathering kind of like judging the people up front with their hands in the air because I thought there was like a holiness act going on. It wasn't until I truly and radically fell deeply in love with the Lord that I realized that desire to worship and to express yourself in any way to the Lord you love. And one way our desire for him is sustained and through, is through prayer. Prayer matters. Like it really, really, really matters. You know when the first prayer meeting was? In the garden. The Lord walked in the cool of the day in the garden, and he called out to his children. He talked with them, and he asked them hard questions, and they responded candidly. This is prayer. In Daniel 10.12, an angel comes to Daniel and says, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. There's a lot that follows this, and we could get into spiritual warfare and all the things, but for now, we just can't pass this up lightly. An angel was dispatched because of someone's words. Often we pray, and we feel like we're doing nothing. But I'm going to tell you something very alarming. Stuff like that happens when you pray. It's not just Daniel. God moves. I don't care how silent you think he's being, how little you see his movement, how disappointed or tired you feel, 
in your prayer life, things shift when you pray. Jesus addresses some really important aspects of prayer in his Sermon on the Mount. So go ahead and open up to Matthew 6, 5 through 15. Um, I'm going to read from the NIV for sort of familiarity purposes, because a lot of you will know this passage. It says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So let's first address the beginning portion of this passage. When he says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. You, Your translation may even say, who is in the secret place. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So here, Jesus is describing the wrong way to pray and the right way to pray. And it's not about eloquence or articulateness or having all the right phrases. Uh, Those were things that would have been very valuable to people in high religious standing. And it turns out Jesus doesn't care about them at all. Uh, What he does care about, it turns out, is your heart, your heart posture. So first, there are the hypocrites, and we talked about them a little bit last week. These are people who are sort of reduced to being like an actor on a stage, who don't know the heart of God, but through their poise and proper speech gain respect and applause from men. And note, that is all they will get. And think about how quickly applause fades and fame. If you've ever been on a stage or you performed in any time of your life, You know, you get up on stage and you do your thing and you take a bow and everyone claps and you feel awesome, maybe even for a day or two, and then it's done. Jesus says that if you pray to be seen by men, your reward is being seen by men, and then it's done. Or sometimes my dad or someone in my family will ask me if I know the name of like a certain actor or actress from a really long time ago. And I'm always like, no, I don't know who that person is. I'm so sorry. But at one time they were like the most famous person and, and we don't even know their name now. Look at NSYNC. Backstreet Boys. <laughs> like no one's paying attention to them, but they were the most famous. Name your group. And it reminds me 
how fleeting life is. We won't be remembered for that long on earth. But we can do things that matter in the heavenly realm and for eternity. And what Jesus is saying here about prayer, it doesn't rule out attendance and participation in public prayer. He was a faithful Jew. And so, especially as one who loved the Father and loved his word, Jesus attended attended temple and would have participated in public prayer. Those are good and powerful things. Halley's Bible Handbook says it this way. We should never be ashamed to pray or to give our testimony to our faith in prayer, as occasion may demand. But we should be on guard, lest our thought is what impression we are making on the people. Jesus then addresses two different kinds of people and how they approach God. So we've got the pagans. Your translation might say heathen, maybe even Gentiles. Those sound like harsh words. We tend to use those words today for someone who is very irreligious. But that isn't what Jesus is saying here. The pagans and the heathen in this passage are described as people who do pray. The difference is how they approach God. Tim Keller says that the real dividing line is not so much the religious from the irreligious, but the religious from the Christian. The people who pray as the pagans and the people who pray are Father. It's like being in a business relationship with somebody versus being in a family relationship with somebody. In a business relationship, there's an exchange of goods. If you perform, you'll be accepted. I pray and I do the right things, so God should fulfill his end of the bargain. In a family relationship, there is unconditional love. Since you are accepted, you should perform. I am accepted and loved by God. This causes me to pray to this one I love. The Greek word here used for vain repetitions, or what other translations might call babbling, means empty, cold, mechanical prayers. I'm doing this because I should. I'm in this business relationship with God, and if I hold up my end, he'll hold up his. Rather, the kind of prayer that Jesus emphasizes and wants us to participate in is of the most intimate nature. Your heart laid bare before only God in the secret place with your door closed. This kind of prayer isn't based on appearances or on a business-like basis at all. It's the lifeblood to our connection with our Father. And speaking of the secret place, do you know what you're allowed to do there? You're free to cry and be angry, to totally lose it and look like a mess and pour out your heart, the things that we don't tend to do as much in front of other people. But God is our Father. He's glad when we bring all of this to him. He's not just looking for a fragment of us. He's not just looking for the good-looking version of yourself. Bob Sorge has an amazing book on this subject, and it's called Secrets of the Secret Place. He says, To be set on fire, you must get close to God. When you feel cold, distant, and out of it spiritually, it's time to retreat to the closet Place yourself before the fireplace of his word and allow the intensity of his face to restore your fervency. Nothing else will do it. I wonder how many of us have gone a few days or a few weeks trying to maintain some fragment of a prayer life and then sort of gone lackluster or given up 
when we don't see, or worse, we don't feel the fruit of our labors. But prayer is a lot more like the planting of a garden. You don't plant the seed and eat the fruit the next day. No, you prepare the soil. Then you plant the seed, and you water it, and you shelter it, and you make sure it has the proper amount of sunlight. And this makes the budding and the blooming and ultimately the tasting of the fruit all the more beautiful. I mean, it's spring in Ohio. It feels good, right, to see a green bud on a branch after winter? I implore you, because Jesus implores you, to guard your prayer life, to guard your time in the secret place with the Lord as fervently as you would guard the most precious thing in your life. My prayer life was not great in February. I wasn't feeling well. I was tired. And sitting down in front of the TV or with a novel, you know, just getting lost in a story, felt so much easier than getting quiet and alone with God. But I felt the impact. And I felt myself complaining more and the loss of my joy and overall less happy with myself and my circumstances. And one day I sat down with my journal and I just repented of the choices I'd been putting before the Lord because there was a distance between us and I felt it. And it wasn't him who put it there. <clears throat> but after confessing and drawing, drawing near to him again, I just had this feeling, and I wonder if you have been there before also, of just like being back at true north. Like it's easy in this life for our compass to get all over the place. But when you're in the secret place, your true north is going to stay steady with God. And when Jesus comes and he tells us to come to him, the living water, if we're thirsty, we can do that again and again. Life causes us to become parched. He quenches our thirst. But how can he do this if we don't come to him for a drink? He isn't aggressive with us. When I was little, my mom couldn't get me to take medication when I was really sick because I hate swallowing pills. And my uncle came over and he was like, I'm going to pry your mouth open. I'll shove it down your throat. And he was being silly. Uh, but God is not like that with us. He doesn't, he's a good dad. Remember, he's a good dad. He doesn't say, I'm going to come pry your mouth open and drink of me. He's not like that. No, he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and I will give you a drink. And sometimes I think we make the mistake of expecting God to answer a prayer immediately that is one of those things that's meant to be stored up in our spirit over time. So look at peace, for example. I used to think that if I just prayed out of nowhere, Lord, I need your peace right now, then a wave of peace would wash over me and all would be well. Now he does do that. He can do that. But what I didn't realize is that having peace in my spirit always is just a natural byproduct of spending time in the secret place with the Lord. When we abide in him, he abides in us, and that's what prayer is about. If I'm not in the secret place with him day after day, filling my cup, my peace will suffer, and so will my joy, and so will my wisdom, and you name it. Bob Sorge says, when you neglect the secret place, he's not disappointed in you. He's disappointed for you. We miss out on so much when we don't come to him. So when we are in the secret place, Jesus tells us to pray in this manner. You can say it with me if you really want. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think it's possible to become over-familiar with this prayer to the point of um, losing sight of what it actually teaches us about prayer. It should be extremely exciting to us that the man with the greatest prayer life of all time has given us a guide for free. In Mike Bickle's book, Growing in Prayer, he notes that Jesus gave us six requests to pray regularly here. The first three focus on God's glory, his name, his kingdom, and his will. The second three focus on man's needs, physical, relational, spiritual. So let's break this thing down. Our Father in heaven. In Jesus' time, the Jewish people saw God primarily as sovereign creator and king, powerful. They trembled before him. And this is good. But Mike Bickle says, here at the beginning of his prayer, Jesus was showing them that their creator God is also their father. He wanted them to see his affection, tenderness, and personal involvement with his people. Jesus emphasized both dimensions of God, his majestic transcendence as the one who dwells in heaven and his tenderness as a father. He is both powerful and personal, transcendent and tender. For the record, there's no other God like that. Jesus doesn't begin the Lord's Prayer with our king, our provider, not even our friend, even though he is those things. He says, our father. And I think that understanding those two words will not only control the way that you pray the rest of this prayer, but also your relationship with God. John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, we're adopted as children of God, who loves us as much as he loves Jesus. Let that sink in for a second. Who loves us as much as he loves Jesus. And if you think about the process of adoption, like in our world, it's not the child doing a lot, right? The responsibility and the love and the commitment lies first with the parent, And when that child comes into your home, their behavior might not change right away. But you know what does change immediately upon the signing of adoption papers? Status. Belonging. So when you pray, our Father, you acknowledge that God is committed to you, that he is your Father, and that you belong to him and with him. This is how we approach him, as our Father, And it matters how we approach God. So first, we approach God as our Father, who resides above all things in heaven. And then we adore him and we ask for his name to be hallowed. Hallowed be thy name. The New Living Translation reads, May your name be kept holy. And one way you could almost almost translate the word hallowed, it's kind of a thing of its own, could almost say holy-fy. It's related to that word holy, right? Holy-fy your name on the earth. To hallow something is to treat it as absolutely sacred and ultimate. 
We go to praising God, note this, we go to praising God before we go to petition and before we go to confession. Praise frames the others. And when we respond to God in the way that he deserves, when we praise him and we acknowledge his goodness, his beauty, his name is hallowed. When we pray for God's name to be hallowed, we are asking him to take the highest place in our hearts and in our lives and for his power to be released on the earth that more people would see the truth about who he is. And here's the thing. If we aren't adoring God, we're probably adoring something else. If the thing you adore isn't God, you'll only pray when that thing is in trouble. A higher paying job, the vacation you've been planning, your identity, your status, how others view you, even comfort can become an idol. But if we adore God, think about how different our prayers will feel in our own spirit. We go from, God, my job is on the line and I need you to provide, to something like this. Abba, Father, your name is holy above all else. You are so good and so kind. You are Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. You never fail. And I trust you even now with my job. And so on. Remember, everything that Jesus teaches, it's to honor and for the love of God. It's also for our benefit. He has our best interest in mind. Our souls find rest in adoration of our Father. There are so many names of God we can meditate on. El Shaddai, the powerful one. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. El Roy, the one who sees. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Culminated in the name Yahweh. I am who I am. And we ask him to make his name holy in our hearts and to manifest his holiness on earth as it already is in heaven. And this will change everything. Just like praying, your kingdom come. The Lord is already our king. That is why we're here and we're existing and we're breathing because the Lord is the king. What we ask is that God would reign as king on earth with no rivalry. So what's entailed in the kingdom of God? Isaiah 35 gives us just a taste. And if you want, you can close your eyes and listen to this. It's really beautiful. Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel or the plain of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And he, when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the wasteland. The parched ground will become a pool and springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh grass and reeds and rushes will flourish where desert jackals once lived. I think that sounds nice. Creation itself will be transformed. Human beings will be transformed. Ethnic groups will be united together, all under the living God. 
We want to see the kingdom that is already being experienced in heaven to be experienced on earth. In Isaiah 19, 23 through 25, we read about Egypt and Assyria. And Egypt and Assyria were the great world powers at the time, and they were at war. But this is what the passage says about these two world powers. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. The world needs this. And Daryl Johnson says that that's the kingdom. Enemy nations join together now because they're united in worship of the one and true living God. And we get to pray to hasten this day. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Father's will is that every human being set free from any form of bondage. His will is that once we are free, we are restored. It is his great pleasure that we are made whole again. He takes no delight in our brokenness. It's his will that we would know him in intimacy and that we enter into all of the joy and the wholeness of relationship with him. And his will is already being fully experienced in heaven. And we ask, won't you, God, let us experience it here too? And it should kind of blow our minds that our prayers actually hasten the release of his power. In, in, on earth now, his glory and his power, but also the day of his return. You ever think about that? Like, we, we can hasten the day of his return? In Revelation 8, we read that before the seventh seal is opened, this is the seal that ushers the return of Jesus, there is silence. And during that silence, there's incense that rises up, and it goes before the throne, And the incense is the prayers of the saints. And it says that the seventh seal won't be opened until all the prayers of the saints have been gathered. That's you. The next three requests in the prayer are for our needs. Physical, relational, spiritual. Give us today our daily bread. Our daily bread speaks of our daily provisions. So this reveals God's interest in the daily things of life, not just the high and the lofty. When we bring our daily needs to God, we acknowledge our dependence on him. And the good news is, God delights in meeting our needs because he's a good father, and he delights in us rejoicing in his goodness. As the psalmist Asaph wrote, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. He loves to be that person for us because he's a good father. And we pray for our daily provisions. Think about the time when this is written. These are people who probably weren't planning vacations a year down the road, right? They're asking for what you need for this day. It's not wrong to ask God for things you want, but this prayer specifically isn't for like a new BMW, okay? You can ask him for that if you want, but this is for your daily needs. <laughs> and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This petition deals with our relationships with both God and with people. This is first an opportunity to confess our sins before the Lord. And I'll be totally honest, sometimes I forget to do this. 
because sometimes my sins don't seem that big. I haven't, like, murdered anyone this week, which is good. Not, but my sins aren't, my sins aren't actually smaller. Um, but when I do, when I, for, when I confess my sins, a negative thought towards someone, a negative word, I realize that there was, like, crud that's been building up and clogging up. You know what I mean? And the moment that I've repented, that crud's gone. Confession frees us, and this is an invitation to confession. That's why it's in our daily prayer guide. As believers, 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21 tells us that we have fully and freely received the righteousness of God in Christ as a gift. And Romans 3.21 tells us that we are indeed fully justified by faith. And this is such good news. So you may ask, why must a born-again believer pray for forgiveness? Mike Bickle says it this way, When we ask God to forgive us our debts, we are not asking to be saved or delivered from hell. Prayer for our debts to be forgiven speaks of restoring our fellowship with God. And in 1 John 1, 8 through 9, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the evidence that we have been freely forgiven should be that we also freely forgive others. And I know for some of us this is a difficult topic. There may be sins against you that seem nearly impossible to forgive. I can't find anywhere in scripture that would prohibit you from asking God to give you grace and strength to forgive. Let us not forget that his power is made perfect in our weakness. We're coming back to forgiveness in just a second. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is what one might call a pre-temptation prayer. Temptation here means test, not a solicitation to do evil. God does not tempt us to do evil. So why do we need to pray against temptation? In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane urges his disciples to pray against temptation. He says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I literally say that all the time. I'm willing. I'm also weak. We cannot rely on our own strength, even as strong believers, to overcome temptation. Perhaps holding your tongue from gossip or another sort of like general temptation doesn't seem so challenging to someone who's been walking with the Lord for a long time, but there will be seasons of heightened temptation when demonic activity is heightened, when lusts are aroused more than usual, and when circumstances are optimum for sin. Sort of like a sin storm. Because remember, scripture tells us that Satan will wait for an opportune time to tempt you. He's probably not tempting you with an extramarital affair when your marriage is going well. I'm just going to guess. He's he's a little sneaky. So we pray to be spared this tempest trial. And then this is challenging. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's sort of like he's reminding us about that portion of the model prayer that we just prayed about forgiving others, because it's important. And if we remember the context of the model prayer, we're praying for the forgiveness of our daily sins. So again, this isn't speaking of our one-time salvation forgiveness. This is ours in Christ Jesus, 
But unfortunately, you may have noticed, we don't just stop sinning after we are saved. And that sort of cloud, little sin cloud, floating around, it keeps us from our deepest fellowship with God. And he does make it clear in his words, that cloud remains if we don't forgive others. And did we really expect that Jesus, the perfect man, wouldn't challenge us? Like many of you, I have also been in situations that made forgiveness feel really challenging, but I feel encouraged by others' examples of extreme forgiveness. So take Corey Ten Boom, for example, probably one of my favorite humans. Her family lived in Holland during World War II, and as a Christian family, they helped hide over 800 Jews in their home. Eventually arrested and taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp, Corey lost her father and her beloved sister Betsy to the brutal conditions. And there was one guard who stuck out to her, one guard who was partially responsible for her sister's death. And years later, having survived the camp, Corey traveled all over the world sharing a message of forgiveness. But she avoided Germany until she was asked to speak at a small church in Munich. It's at that little church that the camp guard from Ravensbrück approached Corey, the same one she remembered, and she recounts that she recognized him immediately, although he didn't remember her. And he said to her, I became a Christian after the war. Your message about forgiveness touched me very much. You told about Camp Ravensbrook. I was a camp guard there. I have always wanted to ask forgiveness of someone personally, so I ask you, will you forgive me? And Corey later recalls this moment. She said, it feels like my blood is freezing. There suddenly stands a man before me, co-responsible for the slow, horrible death of my dear Betsy, and he dares to ask me for forgiveness. All those beautiful sermons about forgiveness, but now I have to forgive myself, forgive myself, and I can't. The man held out his hand to Corey, but she wouldn't take it. She continued. I pray softly to Jesus. I don't want this. You have to help me. Then I realize forgiveness is not an emotion. It is an act of the will. The feeling is not there, but I can move my hand. Almost mechanically, I place my hand in his. And then something extraordinary happens. I suddenly feel a warm wave through my body, from my shoulder through my arm to our hands. I have to cry. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. There we stood, the camp guard and the prisoner. For a long time we held hands, and never before have I experienced the love of God so deeply. Remember, when Jesus asks us to do something, he also has our best interest in mind. He doesn't want bitterness or burden built up in our soul. And of course, the ultimate example is Jesus who, having been beaten and mocked, and in the process of being publicly executed, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The way in which we forgive is a major part of us revealing the love of Christ to the world as his disciples. We change the world when we forgive. And the world is also changed from our prayer closet, from the secret place. William Cowper said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his knees. Because when we pray, we come into partnership with the mightiest being, the Holy of Holies, 
Our Father who is in heaven, whose judgment is so pure and his love is so fierce that his eyes are like flames of fire. All of the holyfying of God's name, all of the heaven coming to earth, all of the provision for our daily needs, it all flows from God. And we are invited into this magnanimous gift of partnering with him and asking for it to be seen on earth. So maybe it's been a while since you've prayed or since you've spent serious time in the secret place alone with God. And today is just what I said at the beginning. It's just your invitation to come home. And you needn't be intimidated. Um, I remember when I was on my way back from Colorado in my early 20s, I was flying and my first plane was iced over, which caused me to miss my second flight and get rerouted from Chicago to Washington, D.C., and what should have been a half-day's trip took about 26 hours. Meanwhile, I did not have reception to let anyone know what was going on. So my dad was just at the airport waiting for me, and the airline wouldn't give him any information. So all he knew was that my flight arrived and I wasn't on it. And I was really nervous. I was like, oh man, he's gonna be so mad. I'm so late. I haven't communicated with him. Man, he's going to be mad. But when I finally got to the airport and I came down the escalator, my dad and my aunt were there waiting for me. Man, he just gave me a big hug. And I was apologizing. I'm so sorry. I I didn't mean for this to happen. I didn't know. And he's like, I'm not mad. I'm just glad you're here. Of course I'm not mad. And if you don't know God to be this kind of a loving father, this kind, this understanding, this personal, or you've just grown distant. Today is the day to ask for this to be revealed to you. So if the prayer team wants, they can come up. And I'm going to pray this for you right now as a congregation. And I hope that you'll spend time meditating on the scripture and that as you do, your heart will be enlightened and changed And I hope that if you accept this invitation to come just even a step closer to your father today, even if you don't feel like praying, come on up. I mean, you can ask God for a spirit of prayer. God, I don't feel like praying. Help me want to pray. He's cool with that. And ask to know him as father because he will answer you. He will honor that prayer. So Lord, I ask that you would help all of us to know you as our father who is in heaven. I ask, Lord, that you would hallow your name in our hearts. God, help us to let go of the things that have kept us from you, the strongholds, the barriers, the disappointments, the doubts. Lord, we just ask that those would be gone in the name of Jesus and that you would come, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal who you are, that you would give us a spirit of prayer, a desire to pray, a desire to be in your presence, a desire to do all things in a way that is pleasing to you, Father. We ask, Lord, that you would even give us just the grace to love you more, grace to love you more, to desire you more, to pursue you more. We ask that you would pour your grace out upon this body, Father. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.